Welcome to Sound Method, a podcast featuring inspiring audio creators from across the world of sound and the techniques they use in their best work. I'm your host, Noah Snyderman. Today's episode, Found Objects with Jess Sang. Hi, my name is Jess Sang. Um, I'm a percussionist and improviser and researcher. Uh, what you're hearing right now is an improvisation for bass drum, crotales, sound objects, and motors. So right now is the sound of a spinning crotale as I put dishware, so lots of teacups and fine china and rice bowls, onto the head of a bass drum. And the sound um, of them rattling together is what I'm trying to achieve by spinning this crotale on the surface of the drum and having the surface tension of the drum head rattle the objects together. So Jess, you and I are friends, but we haven't really done a deep dive into your work with sound. And so I'm so happy to have that opportunity today. Uh, so thank you for being the first guest on Sound Method. Happy to be here. So something you mentioned when we were preparing for this episode and we were talking about what piece that we'd be playing is that I should play um, a section from the piece that felt like a complete idea. And I'm curious for you, what is a complete idea? So a complete idea in that regard to me would be something that I felt fully ran its course uh, as like an improvisatory idea. So that, that more to me is a full idea in the moment that I felt had run its course. In the particular section that was played, the first time that those rattling sounds were introduced was at the beginning of that. And they all build and build and build and they climax at a specific point. And then something else begins. Right. So I guess in a normal piece of music, that would be like a full, I guess, I don't know, compositional idea. Instead, in the improvisatory sense, you have kind of run your course of this one particular thing. And maybe it comes back, maybe it doesn't, but it feels complete, at least to me. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I, I want to take it back a little bit. And um, I know you've you've been working with more like conventional percussion for quite a long time. I'm curious when your work and your techniques with found objects began. That's always been the part of percussion that's been really interesting to me. My background is that I have two degrees in like classical orchestral percussion, technically, right? But even in pursuing those degrees, I was always looking for the kind of external things, the instruments that were not the standard, like your xylophone, your timpani, your glockenspiel, whatever. I mean, you know, they're, they're beautiful instruments. They're really interesting. But there is something so much more interesting to me about finding sound and like incredible sound in the everyday objects that you encounter in your life. Because we have so many of them and often no one is paying attention to whether or not they're like wine glass or you know metal bowl or piece of cardboard sounds good i mean most people that wouldn't even cross their minds right but i guess i've always had this kind of inclination toward these things and when they sound and and by sound i mean like uh when you can pick something up and hear a sound that maybe wouldn't normally be audible i'm talking about things like uh John Cage had his famous uh, cactus, where if you prick the spines of a cactus very close to your ear, 
it almost sounds like um like a, a pizzicato violin or like water dropping on something and you would never hear that unless you were that close to it if you just prick it the spines of the cactus and it's far away from you it doesn't make a sound at all and so if we use any kind of microphones or amplifiers or contact microphones or even acoustic amplifiers to hear to really hear these things there is like just this incredible world of sound that's in- contained within them and percussion for me has always kind of been about that i mean when i was first starting to study percussion i was starting to look into all these like i don't know european avant-garde pieces where you know you have this piece dresser by mauricio coggle where he asks you to build 52 i think maybe that's wrong wooden instruments and they're all sorts of different things. They're like rulers on on cigar boxes, and they're like one of them is literally just a chair that you're hitting on the floor. Um, and then you know you have all these other famous or quote unquote famous pieces in the contemporary solo percussion world, uh, where you're, you you have to source these objects. You have to find these slats of wood that sound good in this particular context. You have to cut these metal pipes to be these specific pitches. You have to find I don't know like a T bell that's this big and do whatever right i guess i was first interested in the search for mm-hmm. those things uh something about needing to seek something out for a musical reason and the success of your performance and piece being contingent on whether or not you found a good one really um, that has always really appealed to me and going further and further into that world has has always been something that i have tried to I guess, focus my research on. In 2017, I was kind of encouraged to explore this more in like an academic way. And I wrote a paper on European and American history of found object instruments. And that really like opened my eyes to all of the possibilities here. And Basically, John Cage worked with this filmmaker, and Oscar Fischinger is the filmmaker, and he told him that every object in the world has a unique spirit that can only be coaxed out by um, striking it. Mm-hmm. And like, I, that's never, I've never forgotten that. Like, I mean, I, I've spouted that to a whole bunch of different people, and and I mean, but it, but it's true, and and I think it's it's really amazing um, to kind of take that concept and apply it to any kind of music making. I think it this actually transcends far beyond percussion. It is the easiest like vehicle to introduce sound objects, but I mean, yeah, percussion music, any kind of like really contemporary classical music or experimental music now is really honing in on these things. You you have these pieces um where the the violinist is playing like like a, a you know, music box, like a tiny little music box and and you know, that's what that has nothing to do with the violin or like people are playing um you know, those what are they called poppers, like little snapping things that kids have and and I mean you can play all of these things musically and anyone who is any kind of trained musician or has been trained to hear things in a musical way can apply that to these objects and the differences that the objects are really they're for everyone right so i i mean i see it as a whole a whole bunch of different connected things um and a way to have anyone be able to make music really so speaking of introducing new objects i'm curious for you what the process of that is like i i suppose from what you've said there's some pieces that they have almost like a 
kind of an ingredients list of the things that you need to go out and find, which totally. is cool. It made me think uh, about crate digging in the kind of, uh, you know, hip hop sampling technique. But I, I'm curious for your own work or for your improvisations, what's sort of the, the life cycle of introducing a new found object? It's, it's, uh, it's a couple of different things. I think part of it is just collecting and amassing shit for like years <laughs> and not knowing when the right time is for it. And I, I think sometimes they, they tell you, I probably sound insane, but um, I, I mean, I have all of these different things and sometimes I collect the things because they're useful. Like I have a whole set of metal mixing bowls because we cook with metal mixing bowls and they're super handy to have around in different sizes. But also metal mixing bowls are one of the like best sounding object instruments that you can find, right? It, it's really easy. You just pick any one up and they go boom, like a gong. Um, so in that way, some of these things are just my things, not even purchased for like musical reasons, right? And I think the line has started to blur between what is and what isn't um, in my life, at least in the last, I don't know, five or, or six years, where there are things that I, I've said, okay, this is an instrument. This is my instrument for this particular piece or whatever. This is my found metal sound for this one thing. There are other instances where I find something and I say, wow, this really sounds amazing. And I never knew this thing could make this sound. I bought a jello pan last year. And I mean, it, it sounds terrible if you hit the side of it. But if you bow it, it has this incredible sound. That has not found a home yet anywhere <laughs> in, in, in jello or in music, right? So in terms of those things, like it's like th that object called to me. I saw it in like a thrift shop and I said, yeah, that, that seems great. And I took that home, but it hasn't made its way into anything yet. And then other things where, uh, you know, I have like 50 wood slats in a box in a storage locker because I needed that for something. And, you know, if, if the piece requires it and, and you want to play the piece, you have to do the work of going out and getting those. I, I think a really potent example of that is this piece I really, really love, or love, continue to love for a long time, called Cradles by Thomas Meadowcroft. Which is kind of a notated improvisation for two reel-to-reel -reel tape machines. And like, where do you get two reel-to-reel tape machines now, right? I, I don't know about where you are, but uh, I, I had tried to play that piece for years in New York, and it was just so difficult to acquire these tape machines. When I was in Montreal um, studying at McGill, I looked on Craigslist, and like, there were 50 people trying to get rid of their tape machines. <laughs> so, I mean, it really is a circumstantial kind of thing. And so I said, okay, great, I can finally play this piece. And now I have like the tape machine I have doesn't work. It literally does not work. It does not spin tapes, but it does what I need it to do for this piece, which is the reader is intact and I can pull tape through it. So, you know, for my purposes, it works. It's an instrument. It's a functional <laughs> object. For anyone else, like, th this is garbage. <laughs> so you've talked about all these things being instruments. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know between... What is an instrument for you? So when, when I'm listening to that piece and I'm, when I'm watching it, and maybe it's just because I've recently, um, fallen head over heels for VCV rack and a totally. modular synthesis. Uh -huh. it, it, it kind of made me think of modular synthesis where 
like the mallet was kind of the gate and then the drum was an oscillator. And then all these things you were putting on were either modulating the oscillator or getting modulated by the oscillator. So to me, I saw it as an instrument, but it sounds like for you, all of these things are their own instruments. Yeah, I mean... Or what would you say? mm -hmm. I think it kind of could go either way. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think part of the beauty in going through this process, and, you know, it's a lifelong process, is to find where something, an object can surprise you, right? Um, Something that I've had and used all along as this particular thing can be completely upended by using it in this other way or doing something else with it or applying a different technique to it or whatever. Yeah, and, and like you said... It's all about the framing of it, right? In in terms of the the analogy to um, modular synths, like there's so much that I guess this particular bass drum amplifier idea that that I, I I've been working with draws out of all of these things. I, I guess like an example of that would be, I mean, I have I have symbols, right? Percussionists need symbols. Uh, I have lots of little symbols um, and little symbols if you hit them they they kind of they splash and they go away right um, if you scrape them along the head of a drum you really hear the tone of the symbol almost as like a drone and so if you asked me 3 years ago or so and you said you know can you make a drone on the symbol i would either roll on it or i would bow it right that's kind of as a percussionist that's what you can do to hear this other sound come from it by scraping the edge of it along the head of this drum. And only in amplifying the head of the drum do you hear that sound, right? I mean, you, you could hear it if you put your ear really close to it again. But the microphone really does the magic there in letting that warm, beautiful drone sound live. Yeah, so like that, I mean, that that's even like a traditional instrument that I had no idea was capable of this particular sound making. And I think there's always, I, I mean, you know, you could live your entire lifetime trying to discover every single sound that you can make. And so whatever pops out and becomes interesting, uh, I think, at any given moment is what I'm interested in exploring further. How are you thinking about timbre in your work? Timbre? That's a good question. Generally, I'm thinking about, I guess, balancing timbre because it's so easy in any kind of improvisation that involves drums or percussion to get kind of bogged down in the same, too much of the same, right? And I think there are a lot of like little, I guess, tricks <laughs> that I have like in my back pocket if I need them, um, meta- like back pocket metaphorically, but uh, <laughs> to, to try and... Maybe literally sometimes. Maybe literally sometimes. It depends. <laughs> depends on how big your pocket is. But stuff that I have in case something is going on for too long. And it's funny to say something's going on for too long if you're the only person making the sound. But it's so easy to get lost in one continuous timbre when you're improvising because there are so many different, like there's such a richness to certain things. And if you are really listening, you can get so lost in it that it's been going for like 15 minutes. And, you know, maybe maybe someone else that isn't as interested and isn't listening as deeply is not so interested in that same thing. So these like timbre interrupters maybe is what I would call them. Like if if I were playing the same kind of thing over and over again, let's say I was like bowing a cymbal on, on a drum over and over, I would want something that can I can activate that will make its own sound to create a shift in timbre. And so I have all these little uh, motorized things because something that's really hard about improvising as a percussionist is that you really only have your two hands and like maybe feet if there's something attached, right? 
if you can have one hand going consistently and doing something, but then you're limited to what you can do with your other hand. You can't hold something and also play it. That's three hands. <laughs> yeah, so I have these little motor things that they have all different kind of like, there's rubberized surfaces underneath them or like uh, even like tiny brushes where I can just drop them and they serve as, I guess, timbre interrupters. Uh, they completely shift the sound world of what's going on because they... One, you hear the sound of the motor, and two, you hear the sound of whatever it is rubbing against the other surfaces, right? Those are super useful because, like, you can throw them in, like, let's say a, a resonant bowl or, or inside a cymbal or something, and they, they kind of rattle around, and you, you hear this, like, sound. Or you can have them pull things for you, which is an idea that I haven't really fully delved into yet. But, um, like, as an example, I've put them on seashells. And so they push a seashell along something and a seashell has all these ridges. So you hear the ridges of the seashell moving along, I don't know, a cymbal, a drum, or whatever. And again, like these are all different kind of textures that interrupt, but remain continuous. So it's not like an explosion happens and then you go back. That would be really boring if you just, you know, every time you felt that people were getting bored, you just threw something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to ask you two more pretty similar questions. Mm -hmm. When you're doing your improvisation, when you're performing, how are you thinking about pitch? You know, honestly, really not at all about pitch. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe like internally, subconsciously, I'm thinking about pitch, but I think pitch is so removed from my existence um, in percussion. I mean, obviously things have pitch, like no, no denying that, but very rarely am I going for a specific pitch. I will say the only time that I, you know, am looking for a specific pitch is when I'm playing with someone else and trying to match something they, they've done or, or contrasted or whatever. I have a couple different things that are similar to cymbals, like metal, thin metal things um, that I can bow and they are in certain pitch worlds. And, you know, uh, this matters less for me by myself, but more for trying to play with other people. So I have uh, this one thing, I think this is like my favorite instrument. It's, it's, a, it's a plant plate. It's like the metal plate that goes under like a house plant. But it has all these little holes like punched in it. And it's super thin. It's like maybe like, you know, thinner than a coin. And because of all the little holes, every different positioning of it creates like a drastically different pitch. And I mean, this is how much I think about pitch, right? It's like I've been playing with, with this thing and sometimes I just really want to hit the same or like a, a consonant note with someone else. And I would say, I would say like, uh, this is just my estimation, but like 75% of the time this thing provides. I don't know why. Um, and I, I mean, there's no, like I have a tactile understanding of it, but I'm I, like, there is absolutely no way I could tell you like, oh, this will make an A right now. Like it, it, I, I just don't know. But it has really provided for me in, in lots of different improv contexts. And, and so, yeah, I, I don't think it's super, pitch is super important to me uh, generally, like on my own. But I think, you know, there, there are absolutely times where I'm looking for specific kind of notes. And, and, and also, um, I guess in all of the teacups rattling together that you heard earlier, I did select those in specific clusters. So I guess it's not really about specific pitch for me, but like how the whole of, of things sound together, right? If 
those things are, I found, too similar, like in pitch, each one of those little rattly teacups or bowls or whatever, then the sound that they make is not super interesting. It could maybe potentially come from one thing. So to really hear multiple objects to be able to discern that as a listener, the different, like drastically different pitches help there. And and finally, I'm I'm sure this is something you think about a ton. Uh, how are you thinking about rhythm? Yeah, I, that's interesting too. I, I think there's a way I think of perceiving rhythm that is so slow that it's almost not rhythm at all. <laughs> and I think that is maybe where I, I sit more or less. Um, if you think about rhythm as not so much specific rhythm, but just general kind of pacing or like really just how fast or slow a movement is, I think that's that's more in line with, I guess, what I'm doing. There's a really, do you know this Japanese improv collective called Marginal Consort? They're like these four Japanese guys. They're amazing. They, they, they never play for less than like four hours at a time. And like they only, they play like one show a year. <laughs> and they're their whole thing is so like slow and drawn out and there is like fast rhythm to it but i i get like fast as in like you know this is faster than like this right like that's that's a very easy comparison to make but if a rhythm is really fast it becomes a texture right and then we don't really perceive it as a rhythm at all unless something interrupts it or it shifts in a way that we hear like you know pronounced accents or something so i guess i'm not really thinking of rhythm as in, okay, I'm going to play this 7-8 part right now. Like, I have the 7-8 lick that I've, I've figured out. Let's play it in this particular context. That's not really something that I do, like, while I improvise, but more just thinking about how things stretch and contract and expand. And there's something really rewarding about hearing pulse after not hearing pulse for a long time. And pulse can, or, or even the acknowledgement of something as pulse that you didn't no was pulse if if we're talking super slow right and i think in seeing the this japanese collective perform uh, that that's kind of what i've taken away from from them and and uh, just um how much you can stretch and distort people's concepts of like these kind of really traditional musical elements and if you if you really just cuz they're they're all about repetition like just incredible relentless repetition and if you sit somewhere for a long enough time it becomes something else and and i think you know most percussion improvisation is rhythm it's nothing but rhythm and to really kind of go at it from a different angle i think is what i'm trying to do with um my improvisation wow uh, three amazing answers um <laughs> Thanks. there's a lot to think about so, Jess, I'm going to end this with um, what I'm calling the zero latency round, okay. which is kind of my version of a, a lightning round. So no stress, no pressure, but, right. uh, but you know, first thing that comes to mind. So the first question is best resource that, that you've come across to learn technique when it comes to using found objects? Oh, boy. I don't think we have one. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. So maybe maybe your just your email address. Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be great. No, I think I think just everything that you have around you, right? Because right. um, there's the, the thing that I love about all these things is that there's no rule book. There's no right and there's no wrong. Do whatever you think is right. Well, I think this is going to be a good question for you. Um, best sounding thing that you've gotten for free? 
Oh, no. <laughs> I found a log drum on the street once. <laughs> What's a log drum? Uh, it's like a like a wooden drum with tongues. I mean, it's a real it's a real instrument. It's not a found object, but um, it uh, it's got carved out tongues, so you kind of hit the tongues, and they sound I don't know, like a marimba ish. Yeah, cool. I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> okay, and then finally, best <laughs> sounding thing you've saved up for. I just bought a gong. Uh, <laughs> I would mm, mm, mm. let me think about that. Uh, there, there's such a. Uh, Good sound is so relative. <laughs> I don't. I, I bought a vibraphone in in like April. I'll go with that. I'm sorry to revert to the traditional answer. Oh no, I I think that's that's kind of a fun way to end. Um, well, Jess, thank you so much for sure. For, thank you for, for having being, me. Being the first guest, and uh, <laughs> you were, you were fantastic. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Sound Method. If you look in the show notes, you'll find that some of the topics we discussed have been linked. These links will take you to an article in the Soundgarden, a constantly growing resource drawing on the techniques, tools, compositions, and creators discussed on each episode. Join us next episode to learn about radio arts with Gambletron. I'm Noah Snyderman. Speak to you soon.